0: Section 14 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Second Decade, Chapter 1, The First Invasion of France, Part 4. The English fleet, some two hundred strong, but composed of all sorts of craft, set sail from Orwell in the forenoon of June 22, 1340, and the next evening coming to anchor off Blankenburg, discovered in the still-distant harbor of Schlush a forest of masts just visible above an intervening neck of land. Three knights were put on shore to reconnoiter, and brought word that they had counted two hundred ships of war, besides smaller vessels, and nineteen ships so large that they had never seen the like, and with them the English Christopher, taken by the French the year before. In a curious and interesting letter from his father to Prince Edward, preserved in the archives of the City of London, the earliest extant dispatch giving account of a naval engagement, the number of the enemy ships is given as one hundred and ninety, but this would seem to be an underestimate if, as the king also states, their fleet carried thirty-five thousand men. During the night, The enemy left their moorings and were seen at daybreak drawn up in four lines across the passage of the estuary on which the port of Schlush opens. Their ships were chained together and carried towers on their tops filled with stones and other missiles to hurl down upon the decks of the English vessels. King Edward's first care was to place fifty noble ladies of honor who were going abroad to wait on Queen Philippa in light-swift sailors under a strong guard. He stood next out to sea in order to get wind and sun in his rear, and then bore down with irresistible force and speed on the foremost line of the enemy. As soon as they had got within range, the English bowmen poured in such a terrible volley of arrows that the Genoese crossbowmen and the French ships, so far from being able effectively to reply, were driven from the decks, and at the first shock of ship against ship the English men-at-arms boarded with loud shouts sword and axe in hand, and struck down all resistance. The Christopher was soon recaptured, manned with exulting English sailors and archers, and advancing with the rest broke the second line, and poured down destruction from her lofty decks on the smaller vessels composing it. At this moment arrived Sir R. Morley with the fleet of the northern ports, Upon which a panic struck the third line, and the men, knowing that their ships were inextricably grappled together, leaped in their terror into the sea, and it is said that in this way no less than two thousand perished. The fourth line, consisting of sixty large vessels, still remained unbroken, and continued to offer a gallant resistance to the English fleet till nightfall enabled the few which were not altogether disabled to make good their retreat. It is said that of the English navy, two ships only were lost, while out of the great fleet of the French a few stragglers only escaped, and 25,000 to 30,000 men were slain. And now arriving at the scene of his intended operations with plenty of ready money and the fresh renown of his victory, the English king found no difficulty in mustering his allies for the long-planned siege of Tournay. That city was at once invested by an army of more than 100,000 men, 40,000 of whom were Flemish troops led by Van Artevelde, while another host, scarcely inferior in numbers, advanced under Robert of Artois to the siege of Saint-Omer. This latter force met with a disaster which no human foresight could have provided against. After a repulse under the walls of Saint-Omer, Robert was encamped in the Vale of Cassel, a detachment of his army having been surprised in the village of Arc. Some of the fugitives had reached his camp in the middle of the night, upon which a sudden and unaccountable panic arose and spread through the host, giving a color to the popular belief that D'Artois was bewitched, and an army of 50,000 men, tearing down their tents and leaving baggage and arms behind them, fled in every direction and dispersed themselves over the country. Tournay, meanwhile, was bravely defended by a garrison of thirty thousand, and Philip, with a great following, had advanced to its relief. Matter seemed now to be drawing nigh a crisis, but the crisis never came, for the French king had determined again to try his hitherto successful policy of exhausting the resources and patience of his rival by a masterly inactivity— and avoidance of battle. Edward, chafing at delay which he had before found so fatal, wrote to King Philip a letter, highly characteristic of the chivalric customs and modes of thought then dominant in Europe. It was dated in the first year of our reign over France and the fourteenth over England, and proposed to Philip of Valois to fight at a given time and place either in single combat, or each at the head of one hundred men, or each at the head of his army. Philip answered that he had seen a letter brought to his court for Philip of Valois, but as it was manifestly not addressed to him, it was not for him to reply to it. But he took the opportunity of saying, Since you, in breach of your liege, homage, and fealty, have entered our territory, and done great damage to our realm— we intend to chase you out of it when we think proper. The siege apparently making no progress, Edward determined to reduce the garrison by starvation. But he was getting tired out, and his attention was demanded elsewhere, for Philip's lieutenants in the south had occupied a great part of Guienne, and the Scots, aided by France, had recaptured Edinburgh and were making a raid into the northern counties of England. He was therefore disposed to come to terms, and Philip, who had reason to know that the provisions of the garrison would hold out but a few days longer, was ready to meet him halfway. At this juncture, Jane, Countess Dowager of Hainaut, mother of the Queen of England and sister of the Queen of France, came out of the convent in which she had lived since her husband's death, to the English camp, and on her knees besought Edward to raise the siege a truce for nine months in which Scotland and Aquitaine were included, having been agreed upon, Edward withdrew sullenly and reluctantly from before Tournay, weighed down with debt, and embittered by the failure of his second great undertaking. He had repeatedly written home to his ministers for money, but the supply sent had fallen far short of his expectations, and indeed of the sum granted by Parliament. Suspicions of the fidelity and disinterestedness of his ministers, and especially of the archbishop, beginning to be whispered to the king by sycophantic and profligate courtiers who hated Stratford for his lofty and perhaps somewhat aggressive morality, he stole away with his queen to Zeeland, leaving the Earl of Derby in pawn for his debts, and then, crossing the Channel, a three days' passage in rough November weather, He sailed unannounced up the Thames and landed at midnight under the tower. Edward had doubtless real causes of exasperation. Moreover, kings are but men, and no man's temper is the better after his bile has been churned for sixty or seventy hours at sea. His mood on landing was so bitter and savage that he seemed only to look for victims on whom to visit his displeasure. He found the tower unguarded, so that pirates or French marauders might have entered it as easily as himself, and instantly threw the governor and his officers into prison. Next morning he arrested the Lord Treasurer and the High Chancellor, Robert Stratford, brother and successor in that office of the Archbishop, for having neglected, as was alleged, to raise or duly transmit to the King the monies granted by Parliament. Both being bishops They could not legally be imprisoned and had to be immediately released. But the great seal was committed to Sir Robert Bouchier and the treasury to another layman. The archbishop on whom the chief odium rested as president of the defaulting council, the moment he heard of the king's arrival, fled to Canterbury and took refuge in the priory of Christchurch, not because he was guilty as at first sight appeared, but because he knew that the king, in his present unreasonable mood, would hold him responsible for evils which he had done his best to counteract. He was now summoned to appear before his sovereign, but instead of obeying, he wrote him a letter accusing him of having, by his acts, done under evil advice, contravened the great charter, and the laws which by his coronation oath he was bound to maintain to the great peril of his soul— and reminding him of the lessons to be learned from the fate of his father, whose arbitrary acts had cost him the love of his people. This letter being unanswered, he then preached a sermon to the same effect in Canterbury Cathedral, which he concluded by excommunicating all except the king and his family who should disturb the peace of the realm or lay violent hands on the clergy. Upon this, the king wrote to the prior of Christ's church a letter for general publication, in which he laid the whole of the blame of the miscarriage of the expedition at the archbishop's door. Stratford replied by another political sermon, in which he argued that it was not possible to collect the taxes of a whole year during the two months which the siege of Tournay lasted, and that had they been collected, they were already forestalled and mortgaged for debts before contracted. This discourse he got written out by his scribes, and copies were sent round to be read aloud in every church in his province. At the same time, he wrote to the king, advising him to summon a parliament, before which he declared that he was ready to answer for himself. To this step, the king's counselors replied by the document known as the Famosus Labellus, which was sent to all bishops, deans, and chapters for publication. It contained a recapitulation of all the charges against the archbishop already urged and already repelled, in the course of which they compared him to a reed running into the hand that leans thereon, and applied to him as the king's most trusted counselor the vulgar adage, mus in pedra, serpens in gremio, ignis in sinu. They further stated that the archbishop, though furnished with a safe conduct, had refused to appear except in full Parliament, which at that time ex causis rationabilibus could not conveniently be held. At length, however, in 1341, a Parliament was summoned, and Stratford came up to London, crossing the river with a grand retinue of bishops, priests, knights, and men-at-arms, and presented himself at the door of Westminster Hall he was refused admittance by the king's Seneschal and Chamberlain till he had first appeared in the court of exchequer. With this requirement he complied, but on again presenting himself at the door of Parliament, he found the entrance barred as before by the King's officers. The peers, however, began to show signs of resenting this violation of their privileges, and petitioned the King to reaffirm the rule that a peer impeached by the Crown should not be compelled to plead before any other tribunal than the High Court of Parliament. The king at first made difficulties, but the necessity of procuring a supply triumphed over his reluctance and compelled him to give his assent. He was induced to do so the more readily because he was beginning to feel the loss of the archbishop's counsels and wished for a reconciliation with him. Stratford's enemies drew up articles of accusation which he met openly in Parliament, demanding a trial before his peers in accordance with the great charter. A committee was appointed to investigate the rights of the case, but the day after the king came down to Parliament and declared in the presence of that assembly that he admitted the archbishop to his grace and acquitted him of all the charges brought against him. Two years afterwards, the proceedings of the impeachment were formally pronounced to be null and void, but in the meantime and up to the time of his death, Stratford was again the most confidential adviser of the king. The age of Edward III was barren of great statesmen, but Stratford was one of the best and most disinterested of that king's advisers. The only reward he got, as we are told, was that upon his death, Edward confiscated and seized for his own use all that the archbishop left behind him. His case is chiefly noteworthy as affording probably the first and certainly the latest instance of a prelate's right to be tried as a peer by his peers being recognized by Parliament. The next measure brought forward in the session was the inevitable demand for redress of grievances— The king granted all the prayers of the petitioners, and with an alacrity which must have surprised those members who were not acquainted with the fact that he had previously signed a paper secretly protesting against them as prejudicial to the rights of the crown, and extorted from him under pressure of necessity. Edward had come with very little dignity or credit out of his conflict with the archbishop, but the course which he took in respect of these petitions can only be described as sneaking, treacherous, and morality apart, altogether unworthy of the foremost knight of Europe. They related chiefly to the privileges of peers already recognized, and to the malversation of the royal officers, who, as the law stood, were practically irresponsible. It was therefore demanded that in every parliament— which body it will be borne in mind was at this time as a general rule elected and dissolved every year, the king should on the third day take into his hands the offices of all the ministers, thus to abide for four or five days, so that they be put to question to every complaint, and if default be found, to be punished by judgment of the peers. An express exemption was made in favor of the barons of the exchequer, and the justices of the king's bench and common pleas. Nothing could be more reasonable and moderate than these petitions, and the king gave them his royal assent, had them, as usual, embodied in a statute and published under the great seal. Yet, four months later, with an almost cynical disregard of honor and morality, he issued a circular to the sheriffs of the counties, stating that the Obstinacy of the Parliament in demanding things contrary to the laws and customs of our realm of England, and to our prerogatives and rights royal, compelled us to dissimulate and pretend to grant what was contrary to sound policy, and we now therefore will and decree that the said statute be null and void. It will hardly be wondered at that after taking such a step as this, the King hesitated for two years to face a new Parliament, At the expiration of that time, however, he had the effrontery in the address to prevail on that body, assuring them that their requests would be granted in substance without it, to erase by their own act and authority the obnoxious instrument from the statute book. Churchmen have not failed to remark that this revocation of the statute, the most indefensible act of Edward's reign, was perpetuated while the king was acting under the advice of a lay ministry and the first lay chancellor. End of Section 14